Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have Dennis Figg from Missouri. He's a longtime conservationist there, and we're going to talk about how wildlife professionals are adapting to climate change. Also, we have Tim Watkins with the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. Don't forget to visit the website, americaadapts.org. And please consider subscribing to us on iTunes. Go ahead and visit iTunes and search for America Adapts. Or visit the Facebook page at America Adapts. I hope you enjoy the episode. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. Hi, everyone. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm your host, Doug Parsons. On today's episode, I have an old friend from Missouri. It's Dennis Fig. Hey, Dennis, how are you? Hey, good morning. I'm good. I was doing a little bit of research on you, Dennis, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to just jump right into that. And just, I've worked with Dennis off and on for some years now, and. As I was digging around on you, I mean, you've done everything. And so I like to introduce people. And I like to have like you. I want you to give what sort of the background that you think is important. But I just really want to qu- go over like, OK, so my understanding, you've been a heritage ecologist, a prairie grassland ecologist, invertebrate ecologist, cave ecologist, Missouri yes. River unit chief. I mean, there's all these things. I don't need to go through them all. But you've like done it all. You've been out in the field doing these things. And so you and I kind of got to know each other, starting to do climate change adaptation probably maybe eight, nine years ago. But do you feel like I captured a lot of what you do? And uh, yeah, maybe a little bit more background. You are from Missouri, but just uh, could you just describe who you are? Well, um, yeah, a, a hick from Missouri who was very, <laughs> very blessed to have a conservation career with Missouri Department of Conservation, which was a habitat-focused uh, agency that's very responsive to citizens, and I had lots of opportunities to have responsibility. Like I was the endangered species coordinator for about five years. Um, I did have some interesting field positions, worked a lot with private landowners, and I grew up with also a natural areas program that affected my thinking. So, so much exposure and agency that promoted, promoted thinking about fish wildlife into the future. I was trying to think, when did we first meet? Do you, I mean, I, I want to think it was the guidance document when they got the folks together for that, but was it some other meeting or something? I don't suppose you recall. Well, I thought maybe it had to do with the Wildlife Habitat Policy Research Program, and one of the meetings we had there to to present the results of how do we build a, a conservation network that sustains fish wildlife into the future. Does that ring a bell? If not, it was probably related to state wildlife action plans and, and climate. Yeah, I think there was like a sister meeting to one of the, the SWAP meetings, and I think maybe that's where we overlap because like our SWAP coordinator showed up. And SWAP is State Wildlife Action Plan for listeners out there that don't want to deal with our acronyms. And, yeah, I think that might be it. And, you know, I didn't really know too many people from Missouri at the time. And, you know, I what I want you to do, 
Dennis, is like when I, I – I'm originally from Florida, and I'm a bit of a biodiversity snob, and I think of places like Missouri. <laughs> places like Missouri, you've got like – I think I've said this before to people. It's like you've got like raccoons, rock pigeons, and maybe pet turtles. And I want to give you an opportunity to just kind of like quickly say, if people who don't know Missouri want to visualize what is conservation there, what's worth protecting? I mean, are there things besides like raccoons and dogs and cats? I mean, what's there? Right. Well, a lot of people think of uh, big agriculture in Missouri, and that's certainly fair, a big agricultural state. We're also a big river state. I mean, think about it. The the Mississippi River borders the eastern boundary of Missouri, and the Missouri River – all the way from Montana, drains through Missouri to get to the Mississippi River. So the the north part of the state is glaciated and, and, and not really that old in terms of plant, fish, and wildlife diversity. But then south of there is the Ozark Highlands, and the Ozark Highlands is an ancient landscape. And yeah, it's a very diverse state, uh, influenced by the south, the southeast, fish and wildlife of the southeast, and then uh, plants and animals further north. So it's a very interesting place to be. I love it whenever every state always says we're sort of the center of biodiversity, you know, and I, I love it. And, and so it might as well say the same for Missouri. Yeah, that's true. You go to the, the state while I've I mean, the state agency meetings and everyone's just proud of where they're coming from. And I think that's probably a good thing. It makes it easier for them to it do is. what they do. So it is. Well, I'm, I'm just curious, like Missouri, how much is like intact habitat is there and i and i guess i mean sort of historic it's probably not much but i mean would you say five percent two percent twenty percent yeah you know that's a great question it kind of depends on the habitat system if you look at north missouri which is now primarily agricultural it's true that there's really not much uh what we could call intact habitat systems there are remnants uh, of prairies and a few wetlands not very much southeast missouri the, the Boot Heel, which the Boot Heel uh, is the Mississippi River floodplain going all the way down to the Mississippi River. And, yes, tremendously changed. The Ozark Highlands, however, probably continue to sustain a lot of their natural plant and animal systems. And the Ozark Highlands is just a great landscape that is it's got a lot of natural habitats left. The only other uh, – we're also on the eastern edge of the Great Plains – and so we have some prairie remnants over that way. But like in that system, we're talking about less than 1% wow. of the Tallgrass Prairie remains. So it really is convergence of those things. It's exciting to be on this edge of the Great Plains and this the and yet be influenced by the southeast. But other than the Ozarks, I think the rest of our state are pretty compromised. Hmm. Well, another thing, Dennis, I, I'm shocked I didn't know this about you. And again, with some of my research, I just, it really made my day to find out about this is handy hints for Missouri Outdoors. <laughs> um, we have a celebrity on the podcast today, oh, yeah. Dennis Fig, and all that stuff is now on YouTube. And I think what was exciting is you guys with that show were sort of – you were ahead of the curve on YouTube because it sort of lends itself. And so I found some footage. It, everyone, you can go and I think look up <laughs> Missouri Outdoors. And there you come out and there – you know, Dennis, to be quite honest, you had the most amazing mustache in at least the, <laughs> one of those seasons that I was watching. And I just – I barely recognized you. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I was that was a much younger uh, person then, but you know that was the time when Tim Taylor of Tool Time was you know was big, and so they said let's 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 have some version of Tim Taylor for the outdoors, and that became Dennis the Handy Hints guy, and we showed people how to build a bluebird box, how to plant a native shrub, um, how to choose hiking boots, 
You know, it's all great fun, these short magazine segments that got people outside to think about being outdoors with Fish and Wildlife. It, it was great fun. Well, it is now on YouTube, and so you realize you will live on forever because, I mean, 50 years from now in whatever format technology is, I mean, you're going to have this sort of legacy, like, here's conservation in the 20th century. And so, I mean, yeah, you're around for good, Dennis. Oh, yeah, that's that's kind of scary to think about. I know that one of the purposes of Handy Hints is that my youngest son uses it to get girlfriends because he's on some of those segments. Oh, nice. Yeah, chubby little guy. <laughs> Well, anyway, that made my day, and I, I want to use some of that imagery for the show notes. I'm going to get your permission for it, but I've got a screen capture of one of it, and I'll run it by you. But just uh, Oh, too yeah. fun. <laughs> well, Dennis, so we're here today. You, one of the reasons I recruited you is I, I think of people that I like talking to and who have great ideas and is very creative. And so when we go to these meetings together, I always like to hang around you because you have an opinion about everything. And so this podcast is all about adapting to climate change, and it's something that you've really taken an, a lead approach to. Uh, what, what would you say the last 10 years? Is that kind of the time frame that you've kind of kicked into this? I, I think that's a good measure. It feels like the last third of my formal conservation career really became apparent that, that uh, it was not a sat- static system out there and that climate was affecting all the things that I'd work for and will work for in the future. And it made me question many of the approaches we'd used and some of the things I was spending my time doing, like like identifying a network of lands and waters for fish and wildlife. And so probably the last 10 years is very, very important topic for me. Well, and to give listeners some context, I have people coming onto the the podcast talking about adaptation, and I have you know it's not just wildlife conservation, but that's who you are. And I think some of the things that we're going to go over today is that I would argue that the wildlife field were some of the early leaders in adaptation planning, and that's partly what I want to talk about today. And I just want to give listeners that context as, as we kind of go through, well, what is it about these wildlife agencies and wildlife conservation in general that lends itself to this broader conversation about adaptation? And so that's sort of the context of why I brought you on, because I know eight, nine years ago, you weren't really hearing many of these conversations at all. And it's just sort of exploded in the last, I think, three to five years. So it, it has. And, and, and it really defines how we're going to move forward. And I understand that. You know, I mentioned habitat early on and, and being a habitat manager and have, grew up in a habitat management agency. I think that's really important because for me, when I say wildlife, I think about plants and the plants that drive the system. And I think that's one of the things that, that has shaped my approach and um, sometimes makes us makes me critical of our community because plants obviously are integral to the fish wildlife communities that we're Managing. So I, I want people to know that as they, they think about my responses or, or my approach to things. Well, one of the things I asked from you, and I don't know if you structured it this way, but we were going to talk about state wildlife agencies because that's both our backgrounds. I came from Florida, the state wildlife agency there, and you're from Missouri. And, you know, I think we have a lot of opinions on what they're doing with climate change. And I think we're going to cover a lot more ground. And I would like to talk to you about maybe some of these other things that you're doing. You, you know, you work on some national adaptation conversations, and I want to get to that. But um, did you kind of come up with your top – one of the things that we said was like, okay, how are fish and wildlife agencies dealing with climate change, and maybe what are some of the tough decisions that they're making? Did you kind of come up with a list? or I came up with some top three challenges. Okay. That, that's kind of what we talked about. And uh, I can present those with no dialogue, or we can do them one at a time with a dialogue. <laughs> 
Well, I think it'd probably be more interesting for people. It's like I, I came up with my three, and it's sort of like challenges. And then you, you say it, and if I have an opinion, let's just jump right into it. And if I think it's stupid, I'm going to tell you that. I and love you can, it. I love it. And, you can, and if it's like pretty good, I'll just, you know. <laughs> all right, that's okay. All right, so, all right, countdown. All right, let's okay. start at number three. And I, I, maybe I don't know if this is a priority order, but let's start with number three for you. Okay, well, I, I think it's – I think we're often dealing with a static model of species occurrence and abundance. And uh, if you think about the model for many state fish wildlife agencies is that if you come here at this location at this time, you'll have access to this species. And I mean, they've worked really hard to respond to clients, uh, whether it be for fishing or hunting or, or wildlife viewing and saying, you know, here's where we're going to manage this species. And uh, I think the static model is a, a huge obstacle when it comes to uh, climate and the changing distribution and occurrence of plants and animals. You, you, at some point, you have to explain to your clients that you can't deliver anymore. Well, would you sort of say what the implication of that is that the whole idea of like wildlife agencies monitor, you know, wildlife and habitat, it's that's it's that sort of information you can't even really make policy decisions with anymore. I mean, is that sort of the implication of what you're saying? Uh, it's very difficult not to disappoint the citizens that are really important to your agency when you really can't deliver the same species in the same locations. You know, one one working example might be trout. You know, as we know, some trout streams are warming up. The trout are very temperature limited in, in the range of water temperatures they can live in. It's interesting. Trout Unlimited is an excellent organization that works with state fish and wildlife agencies and they've seen this and they they recognize that some streams are not going to have trout into the future how does that change their, how does that change how they respond to their members and how does that change the relationship with fish and wildlife agencies well those examples you just gave just reminded me like the culture that i came up with especially in florida is that i'm sitting there thinking as you're like delivering these resources i'm like okay non game oh well we can't guarantee a bald eagle is going to fly over and you know ultimately these wildlife agencies are about you know what fishing opportunities what hunting opportunities and you know what i always forget that and you you had a better example of that so yeah. uh, well you know where we're seeing ourselves grow out of this, but it's, this is a really important thing in that we I mean, I think about it, we, we put out data every year. We say, come here to, to catch this fish or, or shoot this animal or, or just watch this bird. Um, and yet the systems are changing. And I, I'm intrigued by by your um, question about policy. Not only does it change how we uh, communicate with people, what we promise, basically, but how does that become a policy issue and, um, you know, one, one example comes to mind, which is um, as uh, ducks and geese uh, migrate up the lower Mississippi Valley, the timing of that is changing at some point. And whether you're a waterfowl hunter or not, that's an important thing to you, uh, to waterfowl hunters. And we probably need to start thinking about how do we adjust the seasons to match the peak of waterfowl migration. And I know that uh, Gulf Coastal Plains uh, Ozarks Landscape Conservation Cooperative funded a little work recently to say, hey, does this mean, does this climate impact uh, mean that we need to start thinking about uh, how does that affect waterfowl harvest in the lower Mississippi Valley? There's a there's a good example of how it's reaching into policy. Well, that's a good number three. And so I'm going to just do mine in parallel with okay. you. We'll count down together. And so my number three, and I think it's related, is just I think, you know, specifically the, the issues 
the issue of invasive species is really going to, I think, it's already a huge issue, but I think it's going to overwhelm a lot of state wildlife agencies because not only we have these pythons and these other invasive species that you know we're dealing with, but the whole definition of invasive species is going to change with climate change. You're going to have species that might be native in Georgia start moving north to North Carolina, and do those agencies start managing those as invasives? And it's, I think it's going to overwhelm a lot of the infrastructure that these agencies have to, to manage wildlife. Uh, boy, the invasive species issue is uh, difficult and complicated, and many of us really would like to reframe how we deal with invasive species in the world we live in today. And you're exactly right. You know, here in Missouri, for instance, armadillos arrived in this span of my conservation career and uh, in my professional conservation career here in Missouri. And early on, we kind of made excuses for them. They were arriving in melon trucks. I know I told people that. Uh, <laughs> and then eventually it's like, wow, you know, they're really here and they're really living through the winters and they're becoming part of our fauna. And Many of us um, in, in, in the fish wildlife community culture haven't really figured out how do we deal with those additions and what do they mean? And what's interesting, if it's a bird or something, the commute, bird community, we're excited. We love it, right? Um, if it's a plant or some other thing that's maybe not so desirable, we have a problem with it. We're not even consistent across taxa on how we deal with this issue, and uh, and yet it it really does define a critical issue that's defining how we are and how we move into the future. Well, just imagine the stakeholder groups, like let's say a species is migrating north that has a lot of advocates in its original area, but then in its new area, you have people who want to keep it out, but then you have new advocates that say, no, we like the fact that it's coming into this area. And it, yeah, that could create some challenges even for partners dealing, in, interfacing with wildlife agencies. Well, and, and you know, I just got back from Hawaii, which is an incredible landscape and, and invasive exotic uh, species accidentally, intentionally everywhere. And I kept struggling with myself. How much does it compromise the Hawaii experience? How much does it compromise native fish and wildlife? And how do we respond to that? And uh, the magnitude is not the, as significant here in Missouri. It is there. But on the other hand, southern Florida, I mean, yeah, what, what a battleground. And how do you deal with these invasive species? You know, the other thing is when we ask citizens what they think about invasive species, particularly pretty plants, it doesn't resonate with them in the way that it would with, as, with a conservation biologist. They sort of think maybe it's okay. <laughs> That's right. Maybe the people of Georgia want Python, so <laughs> we'll see. All right, that was my number three. Your number two. Okay, number two. Um, I think we have far less population data on fish and wildlife than many citizens realize. And I think this is a challenge for us right now. You know, if you look at even common species or, or species that are harvested, it's based on trend information. It's almost always trend information based on and, – and, and they thoughtful people rethink how, how reliable is that. But when you see numbers for the number of deer in Missouri or the number of, of almost any fish and wildlife, they're not real numbers. They're trend estimates. So when we start looking at the full scope of fish and wildlife diversity – what's increasing and what's decreasing, we don't have the population information to make decisions from that people think we do. You know, and I might contrast two things, bald eagles and cardinals, both birds that people love, at least here in the United, eastern United States. Bald eagles, there was a time when we kept track of every single bald eagle nest in the state. 
And we did uh, flyovers along the big rivers and got a pretty darn good population estimate of the number of bald eagles out there and the number of nests, the number of fledglings per nest. That's extraordinary, and that's unusual in fish and wildlife. Then you look at different species like cardinal. And so, you know, here's a cardinal. There's a common thing. I don't think we know or anybody's made any guesstimation. And yet both of these species are vulnerable to climate change. Climate change, I mean, name a species of plant animal that's not vulnerable somewhere in the range because of climate change. I just think this lack of population information is an obstacle to making good decisions moving forward in the future. I don't think the citizens realize how tough that is. Okay, it's, it's a great point, but what are you going to do about it? We're never going to have all that information that you want. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. We're not going to know the number of slimy salamanders that are in the Ozarks. <laughs> ever. Uh, ever, ever. Well, what it means is that um, the, the, the model of fish and wildlife is often uh, connected to a population objective. And, and, and sometimes it works very well. And I have to tell you, the waterfowl community has done it very well. Setting population objectives, managing habitat to reach those population objectives – for many kinds of fish and wildlife diversity, we don't have a population objective. I, I believe we, we're never going to have a useful one. And so it can't be the thing that drives our thinking. Rather, we need to think more about the habitat system that, that species are in and understand that their populations are going to change within those habitat systems. Uh, this is a fundamental change in how many people in fish and wildlife agencies approach their job. And to me, another shortcoming there is even if you're getting some of that better data – as things change, again, going back to the policy of it all, it is the policy framework. The policy infrastructure is not set up to deal with this lack of information or the change in information. So, you know, you have people out there doing these surveys, and then it comes back. And then there's a system in place in most agencies, but as things change, you know, are those the, the middle section chiefs, as they move up and it gets into making tough policy decisions, I mean – we're lacking in a lot of that, too. I, you know, you just helped me see the, the, the real obstacle, which is uh, it affects policy. It affects how we approach policy because um, we're expected to have solid numbers and we don't and we won't. And so how do you proceed in conservation without those? And uh, that's exactly right. Oh, let's not get depressed in this conversation. Okay, <laughs> these are challenges, and when we say challenges and we use that kind of wording, that means we know there's opportunities too, and we'll talk more about that later. Okay, my number two, and it, let me make sure that I, I'm not too broad in this, but I, I think as climate change, I mean, it seems like you know there's this acceleration, and the broader society is equating climate change with sort of these disaster events, be it flooding, be it hurricanes, and I think state wildlife agencies, they've always sort of kind of gone under the radar, and I think they're going to get swept up in the broader approach to climate change preparedness. And it might be an opportunity. It could be, but it also could be a big challenge that the consolidation of state agencies. And you know how each state is a little bit different, and people don't understand some Fish and wildlife agencies might be part of a larger Department of Natural Resources, and you have Department of Environmental Protection, but some of them are standalone. And in the future, you might have fish and wildlife agencies get swept up and be part of the Department of Transportation or other areas that are dealing more with disaster management. And <laughs> I'm going to be brutally honest, the wildlife community has always been it, sort of the small player on the block, and it could only get worse if we're not careful. Well, 
that that's that's an unfortunate truth, um, and we're seeing that happen already. And and, and yes, yeah, sometimes there's strength in a fish and wildlife agency having other dimensions. So, for example, in Missouri, fish, forest, and wildlife are together in one agency, and that provides tremendous strength. But I can grow across uh, in in local some states nearby. And yes, they're in this huge agency with like land mining, pollution abatement and things like that. Also important issues, but when they're in the same agency, it can really compromise what a fish and wildlife agency is about. Or you can step across the state line some other states and fish and wildlife is just not that strong of an ethic um, in the political system. And I, I, I'm in, intrigued by your observation that Will it be these disaster events that define response at the, at the cost of opportunity? And, and I think that's exactly right. So for right, right now, we see you know, all this flooding in Louisiana, and it's, it's tragic, and it's very difficult for people. I think it's related to changing weather patterns. What policy decisions are going to be made now because of that that really don't have much value to fish and wildlife or the opportunity could have? could have if fish wildlife was at the table. Hmm. Yeah. Well, my number one is related to all that, but um, I want to jump to your number one. Okay. This isn't going to make everybody comfortable, but I think wildlife diversity programs have been overly focused on threatened and endangered species at the expense of the habitat systems that sustain fish wildlife diversity. And um, it, I've, I've cons- been always been concerned that our approach to climate change is through the lens of threatened and endangered species. And because at the core of a lot of threatened endangered species thinking is keep this species here, meaning this location, no matter what it takes. And if there's one thing about climate and the changing climate tells us is you probably don't have that option. I really think that the, the, the focus on threatened and endangered species that many of us bring in a wild diversity program is probably not in our best interest. I mean, and, and I, I meant this before, I think every species is vulnerable somewhere in its range all the time related to climate. And because of the way we partition out our listing of species of conservation concern by state, we end up being distracted by a lot of things that aren't really the big issue. And the big issue is how do we sustain the diversity of it all throughout their range, not our state borders. Very interesting, and I think you've completely been converted to the dark side of the state wild <laughs> the state wildlife action plan approach. And for people who don't who know these things, it's sort of like a, a statewide um, wildlife plan, but the emphasis really is on keeping common species common, and so it doesn't get involved with the endangered species and threatened species very often. Would you say that's kind of an accurate description, Dennis? That it does or doesn't. I thought a lot of, of, of state wildlife action plans were very much devoted to TNs. Oh, in Florida, it was the whole emphasis. And my impression just from dealing with other states was like the state wildlife action plans, we're going to leave the endangered and threatened conversation to these specific programs. But with the swap, we want to keep common species common. So, okay, so that's interesting. So in your experience with some states, it's it's the opposite. So Well, it's one of the reasons why I had a good time visiting with folks in Florida because I thought their framework was different. Uh, no, I, I think a lot of states are so caught up in this. And let me give an example of the vulnerability assessments, which I was ne- I, I think they're valuable. But people are taking a list of species that already have a conservation concern. They're already concerned about it in, in, within a state boundaries. They're doing vulnerability assessments that are always going to show that they're even more of a concern because of climate change. And it, it leads us continually into this loop of saying climate is about dealing with these wildlife diversity species that have already declined or, or are at the edge of the range or whatever, and not stepping back and saying, hey, it's the whole system that's threatened or changing. 
the whole system's changing, and some of these species are going to function differently at whatever parts of the range that they're in. One of the first recommendations that we made uh, whenever we as states got together to develop climate guidance related to swaps was don't do state-by-state vulnerability assessments. Do it by the range of the species or a collection of states that have the bulk of that range. And then we turned around and we, we didn't deliver on that. And it gives us a weird perspective on responding to climate um, and, and continues to promote what do we got to do to keep this species happening in this location? Well, you know, scientifically, I agree with you, but the the more policy perspective is that when you maybe take that habitat or species approach and it crosses boundaries, like then it's an issue of like who's truly taking ownership and responsibility, and then you know things could fall through. So, I mean, it just it's oh, it's, it's difficult that way. So it, it is super complicated. But you know, I'll give you a good example. In uh, the I talk about Missouri being at the edge of the Great Plains. There's an incredible creature called the Great Plains skink that goes out across all of Kansas. Boy, Kansas sure better take care of that species. Uh, in Missouri, because we're at the edge of the Great Plains, we have a couple of sites. It's biologically very significant for us. I think it's excellent. I hope we can hold on to them. But the point is we never had reliable, viable populations, regardless of our understanding of climate right now. And our investment there should never be what Kansas. Kansas owns the bulk of this species, and yet because of the way people prepare their species of greatest conservation need, they're not taking responsibility for that. Great Plains skinks need to be in, managed in the Great, Plain, Great Plains as a priority. Hmm. You, know, you know, it's Partners in Flight who did a great job with Partners in Flight with setting the priorities for species in the places they're most likely to be viable in and setting population objectives that were related to where species are most likely to be successful and I think it's a strength of the partners in flight approach. I really like this one that you suggested. And, you know, <laughs> I could probably burn bridges, but I too think the the endangered species approach to conservation has just been killing us. And I'm happy, and maybe the, this is not what you were implying, but I mean, I'm happy the Endangered Species Act is out there and there's legal tools to enforce things. But I think in some ways it poisons so many other conversations and planning opportunities and it, it, it captures the attention of the public that keeps maybe other conservation efforts from getting the attention they need. And yeah, I, I kind of have a chip on my shoulder on the whole, you know, endangered and threatened uh, approach to conservation. And maybe that's not exactly at all what you're getting at, but it's just broader it, that being such a, a driver of wildlife planning. No, I, I agree with what you said. And, and, um, I, I, we both, I think, have that position. What, what, what our position is, we do support threatened and endangered species conservation. And again, I was uh, the endangered species coordinator in Missouri for five years. It was a really important part of my career. But you realized it wasn't the approach that's going to really resolve a lot of our issues related to fish and wildlife diversity. And, and, and it's another tool, but it's not the only one. I just think it drives our thinking too much. And what we know is the public, by and large, at some point, they lose interest in threatened and endangered species, particularly for, for biodiversity reasons they don't fully understand or value. Right. Just the different categories, if it's going to be listed upwards or downwards. I mean, the public just doesn't know. And what does that mean? And, and I'm glad there's groups out there that it's their job to know these things. But it muddles a lot of things. So. Well, so when we got to climate change, we start thinking about what we must have. You know, goal one, strategy one of the National Fish, Wildlife and, and uh, Plants national strategy is to identify the lands and waters that will be resilient for fish and wildlife into the future. 
that's that's goal one, strategy one. And and you know me enough to know that's where the last 10 years of my career have been mm-hmm. um, in, in that. What does that network of lands and waters look like? What what if we all design and look at that together, give each other flexibility, how to deliver on that? What does that look like? And and we've made progress in understanding how, how can we move forward that way, what it might cost, what it might look like. But more importantly, then, it, it, it helps guide uh, the discussion of then in a climate changing world, how does that network change or grow? And I think those are the important questions coming up to coming to us as a fish wildlife community in the future. Well, great. Number one, I have my number one. Um, I just want to note that I want to list these top three from each of us on the show notes. And so I'm not typing because you could actually hear me typing. Okay. So I'm going to get this from you later. Okay. All right. I, I think this would be interesting for folks just to have this in, in the show notes. But um, so my number one, and I and I think I've probably mentioned it on a previous podcast, is that I've become obsessed with the concept of maladaptation and a lot of this. And so if people, you know, adaptation, if you're adapting to climate change, maladaptation means that you're trying to adapt to climate change, but you might be doing it in a way that might impact negatively some other sector. And so one sector might benefit, but the other doesn't. And I think (laughs) it's probably happening already is that as you know, the wildlife community was really they we I think early proponents of doing something on adaptation, but now as society at a wider scale is upping their efforts, I think the conservation community is we're going to get screwed on this one. I think as cities and communities and Department of Transportation climate-proof society, that it's going to be to the detriment of of the you know biodiversity out there. And, and I, one example, just so you know where I'm coming from, you know you take an area, a coastal city. And their first approach might be to build a seawall. But what might that mean for adjacent wetlands? And, you know, quite honestly, city planners aren't going to give a crap. They're going to be responsible for keeping out storm surges. And so they're going to build that seawall. And so that would be maladaptation. And I think as the next 20, 30, 50 years, maladaptation is just going to become, in some ways, I think maladaptation will be a bigger threat to biodiversity than climate change overall, if that makes sense, as we play defense on that issue. So that's uh, one. Uh, I, I'm i with you on this. I, I don't think I've thought about it as much as, as, as you have, but I see I see that happening. And, and again, you look at flooding in Louisiana, you look at these big impacts to people, and then what's the, 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 pub, what the response going to be? And I was surprised after Hurricane Katrina, the lack of conservation influence in what the, you know, the response was. And I couldn't believe that it, they didn't deliver a lot of great conservation out of that really tragic event. And now here we're looking at major flooding. Uh, we're going to be looking at in the future. When, when will there be uh, people related responses that probably create as many problems, certainly affect, affect fish and wildlife? You know, here's one that may be touch on the subject, and, and it's relevant to everybody right now. And uh, mosquitoes, mosquito populations, and spreading diseases like Zika. So we're going to go back to spraying a whole bunch of uh, major uh, mosquito control, which af- can affect a lot of fish and wildlife uh, in negative ways. And and, and yet, th- that's a complicated thing. That's going to be complicated for people to understand. But there have been some other non-target insects already affected by mosquito spraying, things like honeybees. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're right now uh, an important theme in conservation is pollinators, pollinator ecology, 
Uh, I, I'm with it. I, I, I contribute to, to that myself, the local scale. And spraying insecticides obviously is not going to work for us. And yet there's this human threat, which is very real. And I understand. And the first response is, let's spray a bunch of chemicals. And these really can end up being maladaptive responses to, to, to conservation. And I'm glad you brought up Louisiana. And, you know, I, I guess I didn't follow as much, like, what are some of the post-Katrina actions there? But this would make for a great graduate student study, and maybe someone's already done this, but you look at the uh, the response to Katrina, and then you look at the response to, what was the, the big New England? Was it Sandy that hit uh, New England? Was that? Yes, yes, Hurricane Sandy. And so they flooded New England with all this uh, money, and there was all these resilience initiatives, and it, it was my understanding that New England, I actually did see a lot of efforts on green infrastructure, and you saw a lot of that. And I don't know if that was just superficial, but it would make for a great kind of study to contrast the two approaches like post-adaptation planning in Louisiana. Was it, you know, did they miss opportunities? And then in New England, how did they do things differently? And I bet someone out there is doing something like that, but I'm just not that caught up in the, the literature. But I would love to see that. How how do you approach this issue? And, and I don't know if it's an issue of resources or whatever, but that would be useful. It would be, and, and I'm way more familiar with you know what's happened to the Gulf. And again, no expert, but but I'm more familiar there as opposed to the Eastern Coast. And what the conservation community did again and again is made solid recommendations based on green infrastructure or habitat management or habitat restoration, all of which are defensible, but don't get any traction in the political system. And, and, and why is that? And so most of the money doesn't go there. And so you, you end up some years after Katrina and you still don't have the habitat restoration that you could have as a result of that with the benefits that we have. And you're right. The response by many communities or anything will likely be structural things that aren't that don't benefit fish and wildlife. And I don't know how to get over that. Well, the mentality, and I don't blame them, is that, okay, you work for a federal agency, work for a state agency, and says, you need to approach this from, like, a disaster management perspective. And, you know, it's yes. interesting. I, my next podcast guest is this woman who, that's her, she's a disasterologist, and we're going to talk about the the links and the lack of communication between the adaptation community and the disaster management community, and we'll probably dig into this a lot more, but it's just you don't blame a city planner to like, okay, what can I do to protect the citizens of this community? And right now, I think there's that window to be much more thoughtful about protecting sort of the natural resources in that approach. And yet, inevitably, people will want to take the shortcut or do things that they're familiar with, like building the levees or building the seawalls. And that's going to just be a huge threat to wildlife. Absolutely. Well, one of the common themes we're going to see throughout the Southeast, and I'm, I'm sure throughout various parts of the United States, is is um, you know just frequent flooding, um, high water events, um, hydration, you know, water events. And it, interesting, my experience here in Missouri. I mean, it was you know a few years ago they were having flooding in Montana, and when that happens, we have flooding here in Missouri without any rain events because hmm. all that water is coming this way. That's weird. Yeah, and, and people don't think of that as a climate-related impact or, or changing weather patterns, but it's absolutely so. And, and then that water moves on down the Mississippi River, and we have the various events. And so how do you manage more and more water in short duration with people? And, you know, one answer, one adaptation is to, to keep development people out of the floodplain. Not a new, not a novel response, 
uh, a very defensible one. But where do we see that happening and how do we as public policy people do that because the fish wildlife benefits are potentially significant? That is a tough one, and they have been trying to do that one for decades, and that, I think, is a, a, a different discussion because people who want to rebuild, you know, they, they would feel like the government's coming in and doing sort of cultural obliteration. What? We've been part of the river system, and this is how we've always lived, and now you're saying we can't go back there, and, oh, that's going to take cultural resource experts just to kind of solve that riddle. It gets complicated quickly, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay, Dennis, we each went through our top three, and we're not done here, but I wanted something structured that way, and I think that was pretty good. I, I'm very happy with uh, what, what we talked about. I think we, uh, if state wildlife agencies are listening right now, we've just uh, solved all your problems. Just throw, <laughs> throw $100 million at all those challenges, and you're going to just be sitting pretty for the next 50 years. But like I said, Dennis, I'm not done with you. I've got other questions that I want to jump into that are related to these things. And so I just okay. hope you're ready to, because I want to just pick your mind, you know. And as I was kind of reviewing notes for this show, and I'm just, I finally gave up. I'm like, there's just too much to talk about with Dennis. Let's just focus on a few things. And I'm sure you have an opinion on a lot of things. You talked about vulnerability assessments, and I want to get into that in a, in a policy perspective. But I want to step back, and I want, I want to talk a little bit about this. And I've had this on a couple previous podcasts. And I'm curious what you think, and even if you're familiar with the whole kind of adaptation versus resilience debate. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, I do. Okay. I do. And, and, and trying to grow along with everybody else. So give us your perspective on what's going on there. Well, I think we've all wanted resilience to mean um, getting something or restoration, you know, get, go, getting back to a previous condition. And climate has made us redefine the boundaries of those things. And resilience really is about having a system that functions for fish and wildlife into the future, even though it's changing. And and I, I, I think we as a community need to work on how we're communicating um, about what resilience really is. Is that your thought? Am I in the right area? Sort of. Uh, <laughs> okay. No, no, but uh... – Listen, I've, I've, I've been having this conversation with, with the likes of like Molly Cross for, right. for a while now. And so your definition of resilience would have been different than mine. And I'm not saying yours is wrong. And that's exactly my point. And so I would lean more toward the definition of resilience that there's this intent that, OK, change is happening and here's a system and it's going to go through some change. But we want to set it up in a way that it'll rebound to a previous condition. And so the whole, to me, adaptation versus resilience is that adaptation lends itself to like some systems are going to be are going to be altered completely, and you know maybe you don't need to fight that. Other systems, if you help it a little bit, maybe they will be resilient, and there's some actions that you can take today to help them. And so to me, resilience is a subset of the broader issue of adaptation. But as you're seeing, you know across the country as other sectors kind of jump into climate change is that you're seeing resilience pop up everywhere, resilience officers, resilience initiative. And so, again, to me, it's this climate-proofing society approach to things. And that's fine. And I think, again, this is a semantic issue. But in there's some cases, you're not going to be able to protect a system like you think. And I'm coming from Florida, and I, I recognize what's going to happen to that coast, where some people think, no, we'll be able to climate-proof the coast. And so I had this conversation with, with, with Molly when she was on the podcast, but it's like adaptation versus resilience. And why it's important is if we take that sort of resilience approach – I think we get into some of those issues like maladaptation we were talking about earlier. So does that make sense? Uh, it, it does. And 
And again, that gets back to us growing with our terms and our phrases and what we mean and everything. And what you just said helped me understand a lot. For me, resilience is uh, not as bounded as, as many people are using it. And it's not about bringing it back to a, uh, a previous condition, but rather keeping it healthy so that whatever changes it goes through keeps it valuable for fish plants and wildlife into the future. I recognize a lot of people are not using resilience in that framework. And, and, you know, I spoke at the Natural Areas Conference a few years back, and it was a little early in my thinking of climate change. But And I talked to them, probably with different words, by the way, but I talked to them about thinking about how these dynamic systems need to change as opposed to keeping them the same. Because the culture of the natural areas is largely what do we have to do to keep it exactly how it is. Find the great places, conserve them. I'm for that. Um, and then keep them exactly like they are. And I've decided that's not even possible. That would be a resilience uh, culture that their definition of resilience is to keep it in the way they're familiar with. Well, see, this conversation is very useful. Just, I mean, it, <laughs> I bet we could get 10 people in the room. We'd have 10 different definitions. And I am not going to argue that I'm right. But, you know, I'm looking at the guidance document and we have a, a glossier of terms. And so here's resilience on how in that document you and I both worked on uh-huh. manage for viable ecosystems to increase the likelihood that they will accommodate gradual changes related to climate and tend to return toward a prior condition after disturbance. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I remember those that discussion. I remember I was the, the man out on <laughs> comfortable with that discussion. I won't name the people who were after me because they, they didn't like that. Um, since then, there 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 have been even in the literature comments about is that where we're going? Is that what you mean? You know, related to this is from the forestry community that I, I've worked with closely, particularly in Missouri. They really had concerns about my use of the word restoration, and I got it. I mean, they, I understood what their comment was because they've always, as a culture, said, you know, what's our desired future condition, and, and described a desired future condition, and then they said, can we get there, or what would it take to get there? And they're way more flexible about a desired future condition that's different, that's different than what they have. And and, and I learned, at least in, in, in my state, that way more progressive in their willingness to think about that in terms of than the fisheries or the wildlife folks. And and so for them, restoration was a very bounded thing to get back to a condition that we didn't think we could they could, we couldn't get to. And I they helped me see how I need to be careful with my language. Hmm, interesting. Well, listen, I don't want to get into these philosophical discussions too much. I, fi- I find it fascinating, but I want to bring it back to the state wildlife agencies. I think okay. um, some of the questions I want to ask you and first of all, the, I, I'm referring to this guidance document. Dennis and I both worked on um, – there's a long name for it, but basically it, it was a, a document that would help states integrate climate change into their state wildlife action plan. And we did this seven or eight years ago now, and it, they had they brought together all these experts from all over the country, from the feds, from states, from NGOs. And it was a great process, and I, I'll be the first one to admit I did very little of the writing. I did mo- a lot of talking, but I left it up to <laughs> other people do the heavy lifting of writing it. But we do these reports, and then you're like, oh, where does it go? It just goes sits on a shelf. But, you know, Dennis, I, when I was doing some homework for this podcast, I was AFWA shared with me some survey work. But apparently uh, 40 states had used the guidance document to whatever degree to help them integrate climate change into their swap. And so I, I thought that was great. You know, that was good news. You know, it's people were dusting it off and actually using that document. So um, I didn't know if you felt like it was getting a lot of mileage out there. Uh, you know, yeah, I think we're both pleased to have been part of that process. 
and we hope it was a growing document. People moved past that. I, I think the the primary use of that for people was to, to move them into doing vulnerability assessments. And so that's some gain there. And I think it was a start of a, a, a change in our thinking. But I, I felt I lost traction on some things uh, at that meeting, too, that that I'm not sure that we've gotten back to. But, yes, I'm happy people are using that document. You know, and, and the, to me, the thing that I lost traction on that I thought was very important was many, many species are going to be uh, changing uh, their currents, their distribution, their, their local health because of climate. We need to be looking beyond just those species of greatest conservation need. And I think that's still an issue for me, even though I think the document is excellent. Well, so I want to talk policy with you a little bit and related to that guidance document. Have you ever done the vulnerability assessment course at NCTC, the National Conservation Training Center? Did you ever do that course? I've not. I looked at those materials. I, I think it's excellent, but I've not taken that course. You know, I did one and I did for coastal system and, and it's really good and it's dense. And I think it really is geared toward not so much me, but the the planner. But it, I think it was important for people like me who do policy to be exposed to that. And so what I'm getting at is that you'd, we've talked about vulnerability assessments, and I think you've already explained what they are. You know, it's one of the primary tools to kind of figure out what is climate change going to mean for species, and then what do you do about it? And so I've always been curious, and even in Florida, you know, we did vulnerability assessment with these species, and then you come up with a list of recommendations maybe on adaptation actions. But you, there are new tools, and then you have these outputs of maybe recommendations of actions but then where do you go with it? And so my question to you is like, to me, I want to see like state directors and like higher ups within the state wildlife agencies have to take that course or something to that effect. Because quite honestly, I don't think they understand the implications of what goes on with a vulnerability assessment. And that is that's the future. And maybe we're going to have variations of it, but you're going to have to make these decisions based on climate change being integrated into that. And they have no clue. And I think all these people are emphasizing vulnerability assessments, but they're getting ahead of the game. And I think it's landing with a thud with all the higher up decision makers. And I don't know if you agree, disagree. I mean, your thoughts? Uh, I agree. And I think that's partly because the the wildlife diversity or the T&E program in, in many state fish wildlife agencies is not particularly strong or not, I should say not particularly influential. And, and to me, that's one of my concerns is that climate is about the whole fish and wildlife, you know, commitment uh, to citizens and not just a species of conservation need. And it concerns me a lot that um, leaders in many of these fish and wildlife agencies are happy to let it be in the realm of the, the you know, the, the T&E program or the, the state wildlife action program and not embracing that in terms of what it means for their whole culture and to me, that's a huge obstacle right now. And you're right. That kind of training would help them a lot. Well, when I was doing some of those workshops, I almost felt like, you know, this is probably arrogant, but it was like it was almost like back to the future and you're Doc Brown working on that DeLorean and you've got this modern technology. Meanwhile, the rest of society is just kind of chugging along with that old stale technology and, you know, wildlife agencies have their approaches like okay how are we going to manage deer and like with these vulnerability assessments it's like you know people come in and they're saying all right we're going to project out sea level rise scenarios in 2050 and you know it's, it's pretty exciting information and yet it lands with a thud and so i guess the question i had for you is that if you were a, a director let's say of missouri or pick whatever state you want to live in how would you handle 
taking a vulner the results of a vulnerability assessment, and you don't have to cover all the ground, but think about the policy implications. What does it mean for like endangered species or management or budgeting? I mean, what would you do with that information? Yeah, boy, that's a big leap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're in charge, man. Now make some decisions. Well, I, I would shift the focus to uh, habitat system vulnerability, okay. which is maybe maybe what you were thinking in any case. Um, and for Missouri, that would be easy or that that would be the course. Uh, that's not necessarily true for many other states, but I, I would shift it to the habitat system vulnerability. And then I would um, talk about our, our, our lack of just tracking change and and how much of that change is anything that we can adapt to or resist or be resilient with as it's throughout the complicated terms we have here, <laughs> you know, and w when is adaptation the right thing? You know, it's interesting because I can't help but go back to my one of our top three things, which is I think fish wildlife agencies are often dealing with the static model of the fish wildlife they have and the relationship they have with that to their citizens. That's keeping them from exactly what you said they need to do. How do you move them? from that static position. I think they have to move away from species and move into habitat systems. And I think they have to, well, you know, can I give an example of a conservation partner who can help fish and wildlife agencies move past that? Um, in the Midwest, in the Mississippi River, uh, Ducks Unlimited is a great conservation partner for wetlands and waterfowl. You know, they take climate change seriously. They've looked at the models. They see that where uh, fish and wildlife are being, uh, waterfowl are being produced in the prairie potholes is going to change. And they are redirecting their habitat management to parts of the prairie pothole region that are most likely to remain viable or resilient into the future. You know, the many partners in the Midwest and, and, and many of them have a great relationship with Ducks Unlimited. They're seeing this demonstrated. What does that mean when they go back to other issues and other policy programs? I don't know, but but we've got good models. Well, that was a great answer, but okay. Here's my <laughs> not <point>. really. <laughs> it wasn't what I was looking for, and I was I didn't give you enough information. And so, well, it, when you were saying that from the habitat perspective, I immediately thought like the politics of it all. And so, like if you're in Florida, like if I'm doing a vulnerability assessment and I'm, I'm the director and I want to bring the public along, like let's say you're just doing it on some key charismatic species like the manatee and you do the vulnerability in such a way that okay, all these different actions have to happen and the um, to protect the species, we're going to protect a lot of other species. So maybe it's worth our political capital to kind of approach the VAs that way. But I mean, that's one specific thing. But I, I guess what I was more trying, I mean, see, that's what you're such a better scientist than me. You're a scientist. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> you were thinking like a scientist. Uh, I'll quote Randy Olson. Don't be such a scientist. I was thinking more of organizationally, like you have a vulnerability assessment. And so the implications of like, all the sort of tough decision making that has to occur and, you know, the inertia of what researchers want to do, what the uh, planners want to do, what your communication people want to do. And the results of vulnerability assessment might take you in a whole new direction. And so organizationally, how do you set up to deal with the recommendations out of those things? Uh, you know, I think the obstacle here is that, see, I don't like that species vulnerability model, and I and I don't use it, and I don't think it is the answer. So, you know, you throw the example of the manatee or whatever. Species, they always have an audience. They have 
a limited audience for many species of conservation concern. And, and it isn't that model that's going to get us uh, through this, the species-based models. It's going to be habitat system evaluations and tying species to that. I'll give you an example. In Arizona, they had a, a, a desert, a Sonoran Desert initiative some years back. And no, they, they had pygmy owls, they had rattlesnakes, they had all sorts of species, individual species. And none of those carried the weight as did something called the Sonoran Desert that everybody could – everybody saw the picture of the of the Sauraro cactuses and all the animals living with them. And they passed like a 78 bit – a million – excuse me, a million dollar bond initiative for the desert and all those things that lived in it. It wasn't an individual species initiatives that got them there. It was a complex concept that they could all see, which was the Sonoran Desert. I, I'm just not a fan of using um, individual species as a way and the science about them to move forward. I just don't see it working very well. Well, you know, I, I mention it a lot just because, as you know, it's it's sort of taken over as one of the primary tools, and I'm not there to judge that it's it's the best one. So, yeah, I, that's very interesting to me that those are sort of the issues that you have with it. And I think partly why I'm on the fence is that it seems like everyone takes a little bit different approach or even radically different approaches to a vulnerability assessment, and, you know, your outcomes are going to reflect that. And I just like the interface that it offers to bring people together and have this conversation. So I guess it, from a process perspective, I, I like what it's doing. Got it. Yeah. Well, we've been talking for a while, Dennis. I have a few other questions, but I want to keep them short. And, and I don't know if there's any er areas that uh, you want to talk about. I want to give you that chance. But I, I, I thought I would try maybe a, a couple like yes or no questions and see if you're capable of answering them, <laughs> yes or no. I'll, let's go for it. Okay. Do you think the states and the, the federal agencies are collaborating well enough on no. climate change? No. Okay. All right. Well, if you want to expand later, but that's, that's good. Okay. And then do you think all staff at wildlife agencies should have mandatory climate change training? Yes. Awesome. Good answer. You get a star. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Um, that, okay, yeah, climate is affecting uh, the the future of, of of how we sustain fish and wildlife, and uh, we absolutely need people to understand. I, I'm not sure they need to be climate scientists, um, and that's how people hear that. But they definitely need to understand how climate is changing our opportunity to sustain fish and wildlife in the future. Everybody needs to have that in their toolkit. Do you think every state wildlife agency should have the equivalent of like a climate change coordinator? I like how that sounds. I think that's useful. I, 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 so now I'm thinking of uh, the structure of fish wildlife agencies. Say, where would they be to be effective? You know, how how might that? Where would they be? And um, you know, I think of that as as in the the, the planning or policy realm. Um, and yet the changes we're going to make have to be management decisions, have to be land treatment decisions, right? I, I, I like the idea of having someone with that expertise at every fish and wildlife agency. It's, it's defensible. Yeah, I think at this stage, I would hope in 10, 20 years, it's just it's all part of everything. But you need advocates, at least at this early in, in the field. So those were my yes or no questions. I, I have my questions all sort of mixed around here. But I, what I wanted to do is give you a little bit of time to talk about some of the other areas that you're working in. I think specifically, and 
maybe you don't want to talk too much. Maybe it's top secret, but you know, you're part of the uh, an advisory committee for the adaptation fund that the Wildlife Conservation Society runs. And I've chatted with Molly Cross before about it, so it's nothing um, secret there. But I'm just curious if there's any quick thoughts. We've chatted about like it's one of the few funds dedicated to adaptation funding. So uh, to their credit, maybe they're not funding the right projects, and they denied two of my grants when I was in Florida. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still not that bitter. I'm, I'm hyping the work now, but I guess they don't like yes. excellence or something. But no, um, well, <laughs> any thoughts on that? Anything you could share? Uh, yeah, yeah, two thoughts. Uh, one about the Wildlife Conservation Society program and then about some other work I'd like to do if there's time. Uh, first of all, um, their goal, I, being part of that team is awesome and it makes me think and I've been learning a lot about adaptation. Remember, their goal is to develop a diverse portfolio, different habitat systems, different responses. And so um, there, I see many great conservation ad- or climate adaptation projects that we've taken a pass on and it's not a reflection of the quality of the work. Uh, it may be they've already funded that kind of thinking, uh, several other options. And, you know, they're trying to come up with a diverse portfolio. And uh, and I, I know I can off the top of my head think of some really excellent projects that didn't get funded. Um, and it was no reflection on, on that work. Florida. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go on. Go on. Uh, but no, we continue to struggle with what is uh, innovative uh, adaptation and how does that how does that change? And. Uh, it's a very intellectual and stimulating group to be part of. What, what I'd like to be doing, I, I see myself uh, being uh, able to give more presentation, particularly Midwest, on climate adaptation of fish and wildlife here uh, in the near future. The other thing is I'm very interested in, partly because of my position in the United States, is talking more about the Mississippi, uh, the whole Mississippi River system. I mean, this is the biggest river in North America, and it's a migratory corridor for fish and wildlife. A lot of people think of waterfowl. No, that's fine. But I mean, I mean, even freshwater eels migrate all the way up the Mississippi River, all the way up into the Missouri River system. The fish, the wildlife, uh, monarchs, dragonflies. If we think about this corridor uh, uh, that ties the Gulf of Mexico up to Canada, it remains an important corridor for fish and wildlife movement into the future. Um, despite a lot of compromises, you know, I mean, the lower Mississippi Valley is over 90 percent deforested. Um, and yet you have people like the lower Mississippi Valley Joint Venture who are building forests back again, working with partners like Ducks Unlimited and Nature Conservancy. And so we're, we're preparing that strategically. But this network is going to be really important for fish and wildlife movement into the future, even despite the compromises. So I hope to start bringing climate adaptation thinking into that system all the way from the Gulf of Mexico all the way to the Canada line. I'm very encouraged by that thought. And here's a totally like obscure question. Do have, have bull sharks ever been found that far up the Mississippi and by Missouri? Oh, that's a too good of a question. Yes. As a matter of fact, a few years back, um, one of the intakes to a town just south of St. Louis, the water supply intakes got plugged up and they sent a diver down there. And there was a three foot bull shark oh who had gotten sucked into the end of that. And that's fun for a number of reasons, not for the shark, of course. But one is what are the chances only one shows up? Right, right. I mean, you know, and so a really terribly unlucky shark. But, you know, there's a lot of novel things that happen. An alligator will show up now and again or some other summer, southern species. Some of those things are novelties, but they also point to how the system will change through time. I suspect swamp rabbits will be moving moving north, uh, Mississippi kites, perhaps swallowtail kites. But, again, it's this impressive 
corridor. You know, we, we think about salmon in the Pacific Northwest, but we've got fish in the Gulf of Mexico who migrate into the Mississippi River system and live in these freshwater streams and then go back out into the ocean again. So we have this huge fish and wildlife corridor that we need to sustain into the future. And I don't think you were thinking about climate uh, in the ways that we should. And we sh- and I can help us get there. I'm so glad I had guests on from states like Missouri. And last week I had someone on from Michigan because I've, I've in my head I've written off like between, you know, the two coasts and that's not healthy. And so <laughs> I'm kidding. So. Dennis, I, I do need to wrap this up, and I like to leave sort of, you know, last thoughts, last words with my guests. I, I always considered you an optimist, and I hope people, as they were listening to you, kind of got that in your words. And so I'm assuming you want to leave people thinking that even though there's this huge challenge, that ultimately, you know, adaptation is, I think, a positive story. But any any final thoughts, any any, like, recommendations of where people should go learn some things, anything like that? Well, you know, I appreciate that because – I, I often am kind of critical of the system and everything, but I'm absolutely optimistic. I'm optimistic about the quality of people we have working in fish and wildlife agencies, working for our conservation partners, and there's a lot of things ahead. I, I think the thing, what I would like us to do is start detecting change, doing a better job of detecting change in fish and wildlife. Yes, we will, it's not about the population level so much as detecting occurrence. And thinking about what that composition means in terms of the changing of habitat systems and and not being overly focused on threatened endangered species, which makes it look like we're not getting there or we're failing. You know, there's a whole lot of things that are changing, and our job is to represent that diversity of fish and wildlife into the future. And, And I think it's absolutely we can be optimistic about making good decisions for that. All right. Great ending. Again, Dennis, thank you for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation and keep doing what you're doing. And so everyone out there, all the listeners, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Doug Parsons, America Adapts, the climate change podcast. We are in the adaptation in wine power hour with Tim Watkins. Tim, you out there? I am. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing perfect. What are you drinking? (laughs) <laughs> first first question is always the important one. I don't have the label in front of me, but it's a 2015 Pinotage from South Africa. Well, I'm going to be brutally honest here. I went to go get my wine, and I was out, so I'm drinking a Flying Dog Snake Dog IPA. So it's it's the uh, adaptation and beer power hour, at least for today. So <laughs> Just call it barley wine. All right. We're drinking. We're going to have a good time here. You had an idea for a, a topic here, and I thought it was really interesting. Could you kind of set it up? You sent me an article about coral farming. Sure. So this was an article that I came across on Climate Central, and your listeners may or may not have heard of Climate Central, but they're a really, really good climate news source. And uh, it was actually a piece that they forwarded on from another place. But I, And it's about a, a startup company uh, that's getting going in the Dominican Republic, uh, which is, of course, in the Caribbean. And what the startup is doing is they're trying to breed corals and select for corals that are likely to do well in the warmer and more acidic ocean waters that we are being faced with because of climate change. Anyway, it's a, it's a nice piece here. So here we have people adapting to climate change, and they're actually trying to create a, a market for corals, which is a little unusual. I like the article. I think this is kind of really neat and exciting work. I have a lot of questions. I was first thing that came to mind is that 
if these corals are actually having trouble out there, you know, how is this going to be any better? But then within the article, they talk about how they're actually testing some of the corals under certain conditions, right? Like the water, they make it a little bit more acidic, or they right. Run. So, so first of all, they're 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 doing this not out in the ocean, which is where a lot of coral farming has been done, where you put you you put out some sort of a plastic grid in the natural environment, and you tie little bits of coral to that grid, and you uh, let them grow up. That's great, but you're trying to grow corals in an environment that's pretty stressful now at this point. Whereas if you do this on land in giant tubs, just like a, a greenhouse growing tomatoes, this is a plastic tub farm growing corals, you can do a couple things. One is, and this is what this startup company is doing, right? They are taking multiple corals from the local populations, multiple colonies. They break them up into small pieces and put them into the tubs. And because they're breaking them up, that actually stimulates the corals to reproduce and grow. So that's how you kind of get that growth going. They can put them next to each other, which, uh, for reasons that are not explained in the article, seems to result in much faster growth and propagation, something like 50 times as fast as traditional coral farms are getting in the ocean itself. So there's that benefit. But then it's an experiment, right? They can manipulate the environment of these tanks in order to select for the corals that are going to do best under those certain environments. And so they can, you know, they can have tanks that are warmer than other tanks, or they can have tanks that are lower pH and more acidic than other tanks, that sort of thing. And because they're doing it locally on the beach, if there's one place in the Dominican Republic using local corals, they can ultimately select for corals that do well in that Dominican Republic ocean environment. And then if they, scale, if they have success with that and they scale this up internationally, they could go to another country, let's say Australia on the Great Barrier Reef, set up a farm there, and again, sample corals from the Great Barrier Reef, um, break them apart, put them in the bins, uh, grow them up in different temperature and pH environments that work well for that local environment. And it might be somewhat different from what, what they're doing in the Dominican Republic. You know, it's a replicated experiment and production process that seems, at least on paper, like it would work really well for growing up corals that ultimately get transplanted into that local environment and uh, are well suited for that. So it's, it's a nice bit of adaptation, I think. All the luck to them, and hopefully more resources are going to be kind of sent their way. Um, yeah, this is what happens, you know. You kind of put the pressure of the, the climate change on people, and, you know, it's sort of that startup mentality, let's try to solve these problems. That's that's all, you know, all about what America adapts wanting to cover. That's very exciting. Yeah, and one of the founders is quoted as saying, you know, even in the face of uncertainty and doubt and sort of skepticism about what, this long-term effect of this project might be or how successful it will be, he says, you know, we're optimists. And you can't be an entrepreneur if you're not also an optimist. And uh, I think that's true, and I think there's tremendous room for entrepreneurs to really step up and uh, have some pretty significant contributions to the world of climate adaptation, and this is a, a nice little example of that. No, I agree. Great story, and I'll, I'll plug this in the show notes. I'll have the link to the, the, the story in the show notes for this particular podcast. And on that note, uh, any I had Dennis Fig from Missouri on. I don't suppose you have a quick, any Missouri stories? you know anything about Missouri? 
to, well, I know a lot of things about Missouri, but uh, and I've been there. Uh, well, but, I've been very cult, I mean, coastal biased in this podcast, and I brought someone I knew from the you know middle of the country, and it, it was great. Dennis had a, a, a great. Hope everyone enjoys the podcast, but I I really just didn't know much much about Missouri, so well, <laughs> doesn't sound like you do either. You, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I probably know a little bit more about it than you, but. Um, you know, did you say show me? Because it is the show me state. So I look forward to hearing his interview. Well, I was considering titling the episode "Show Me Adaptation," you know, in celebration of that. But I haven't decided that yet. So we'll see. And you have a special Missouri chapter of this podcast that focuses only on events in Missouri, and it could be called "Show Me Adaptation." That's well, a nice title. When you listen to the podcast, I, a nice little factoid that I thought was quite exciting is that Dennis said that they actually have discovered bull sharks up way up north on the uh, Mississippi in Missouri. So, you know, they make it all the way that far north. So there was a pretty cool factoid coming out of Missouri. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. Well, I look forward to that. And, you know, maybe Missouri will start producing some wine, in which case we'll have a whole new topic for the <laughs> Adaptation Wine Power Hour. On that note, thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. And until next time, this is America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast. All right, everyone. Thanks again for joining this week's episode. Thanks to Dennis Figg. Really enjoyed that conversation. And thanks to Tim Watkins for the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. Please consider subscribing to America Daps on iTunes. Just visit iTunes and you can search for America Daps. You can search for climate change and we'll show up. You can visit my website. And if you want to contact me, if you have ideas for guests, you know, there's a lot of great people out there doing adaptation and I'm hearing from folks all the time. But I always love the random correspondence where someone has a great idea for a guest. So please consider uh, emailing me at americaadapts at gmail.com. Also visit the website and you can learn all sorts of things about me and the show. And don't forget, I also do public speaking. If you're interested in me speaking at one of your events, just contact me at americaadapts at gmail.com. And thanks again. Um, Next week we have Samantha Montano. She's a disasterologist and we're going to talk about emergency management and adaptation. That's all for this week. Thanks again. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.